Uh, my heart has been already stirred and blessed so much by each of the sessions. I am thankful to be here. It's a privilege for me to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for your kind hospitality. I love this church, and uh, I always go back with my heart stirred and warmed, and I appreciate that opportunity this time again. It's my second time at the conference, second time to speak. I think this is my third conference total, and uh, what a blessing. I have to say that uh, the hair is deceiving. It makes me look like I have it all down. I don't. I'm a learner. You know, I was thinking about the dog story. (laughs) Getting a lot of miles on that story. (laughs) You know, I'm not only like you in that uh, I have my moments in losing it as well. You know, I I can identify with the dogs too. I run with the dog sometimes, you know. I run away. <laughs> oh, God's so good. So I'm not up here in an ivory tower. Uh, I'm on the same level you are. <laughs> I don't have this down, folks. I'm a learner. I'm a follower like you are. And uh, so please don't perceive me as having this down pat, far from it. I am on the journey, and uh, I'm thankful for what God has uh, shown me even these last few days, and so I praise the Lord for it. I want you to turn with me to the book of Colossians, if you would, please. I, for one, need things simple. Uh, that's just the way I'm, I'm made, and uh, I appreciate when someone can take complex truth and make it comprehensible to me. Uh, that's one thing I've appreciated about uh, Brother John Van Gelderen. He, uh, perhaps more than anyone, has helped me to understand this, and I've been wanting to understand this all of my saved life. I really have. My mother used to... Uh, read all the missionary books that she could, uh, written by the Deeper Life authors, and she encouraged me by some of the things that she shared from them. And so early on in my life, there, there was that hunger put into my heart, and I searched and I read, but I just couldn't get it. And uh, I think the Lord has begun to open my eyes, and I'm so thankful for that. It's my personal opinion that there probably is no other verse in the entire Bible that reduces uh, Christian living to such simplicity and understandability as this verse in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. And uh, it's a very simple verse. He says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. It makes it simple by simply comparing regeneration, that initial acceptance of Christ, with sanctification, that continual obedience to Christ. As ye have received, so walk ye in Him. In other other words, the way that you got saved is the way that you live as a saved person. 
There are several things about salvation. If you think about it, I think uh, most of us, when we, when we talk about salvation, one of the first things that comes to mind is salvation is a gift. Uh, if you're saved, you recognize that it is the gift of God. I was very uh, excited by the Ephesians 2 passage that was uh, referenced in the last session. Because I, and as well as the Romans 6, because I was thinking that both of those passages are certainly about the gospel, but it is the, the total package. It is the gospel to the sinner as well as the saint. And so that applies to the saint portion of the gospel as much as it does to the sinner portion of the gospel. And for the enjoyment of any gift, really two things have to happen. Number one, If you're going to enjoy a gift, it has to be offered to you freely with no strings attached, so to speak. I don't think that anyone here that uh, has trusted Christ as Savior would argue that salvation, that the justification part of it, is a gift. And yet, isn't it interesting that we seem to teach or at least imply that we get justification one way and sanctification another way. And nothing could be further from the truth. It is really grace, capital G, that extends the hand of this gift that is to be taken freely. It's offered freely. Second part, if we are to enjoy a gift, not only must it be offered freely, but it must be received fully. Now that verse says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus. And often when we present the gospel to lost sinners, we'll use that very illustration to highlight the fact that it's a gift. It's not something that you can earn or deserve. And so we use an illustration like if I was uh, offering you a $100 bill, I could hand it to you and hold it out to you all day, but in course, until you reach out your hand and take it, Uh, because you believe my offer is is sincere, out of my hand and put it in your hand, it's really not yours. It's an offered gift, but it's not yours until you receive it fully. And uh, so, as that is the case in salvation, in the justification part of it, so, according to this verse, it is in the sanctification part as well. As ye have received the Lord Jesus Christ... So walk ye in him. So as grace is the hand that offers it freely, we could say that faith is the hand that takes it fully. And note this, as ye have received, this gift is not merely some thing, it's someone. As ye have received the, uh, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, it says, the Lord. And so it's not merely a blessing. What we are seeking in this victory conference, holy living, a victorious life, having victory over the flesh, is something that is not nebulous. We're not merely here to get a blessing. We are here to lay hold of the blesser himself. As ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord is the emphasis of this verse. So it's a person that we're after because, folks, really, holiness, that's him. 
Christ Jesus is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, which is a big word for holiness. And so if we want to lay hold of this gift, we must lay hold of him. He is holiness. He is sanctification. So as receiving a gift, we receive him for victory. Notice, we receive, first of all, Christ. And Christ is referencing the fact that he is the anointed one. He is anointed with all the power of the Father's anointing spirit. He is God's prophet. And as such, he gives God's last word to you and me. He is anointed as the priest. And as God's priest, he pleads on our behalf. He is God's king. And as God's king, he is anointed king to reign over us. We receive him as Christ. We also receive him as Jesus, God's salvation, the Savior, that lowly one, that one that walked in our shoes, that one that understands us, that knows our needs, that knows our weakness, that has felt our pain in, in suffering, that has carried the burden, that knows the agony of the pressures of human life. All that we ever faced, he's already faced and he knows. And we are to receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. We are to receive him as the Lord. Have you ever received him as Lord? You know, I think sometimes there's that, uh, that misunderstanding that you receive Jesus for forgiveness of sin and you receive the Spirit for the fullness of life. But actually, you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, and you cannot divorce the fullness of the Spirit from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They're one and the same. And so, sanctification is through receiving Jesus Christ as Lord, and it is through the Holy Spirit, but it's only as you bow to Christ's sovereignty in your life that you can know anything of the Spirit's fullness in your life. And we're not left any doubt in this passage as to how we are to receive him. You see in verse 5, the last four words, your, uh, your faith in Christ, the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And then in the uh, first phrase of verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So the steadfastness of your faith and established in the faith. So very clearly, how do you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith. As you received him as the free gift for the justification part of salvation, so you receive him as their free gift by faith for the, sanctifi the sanctification part of our salvation. Now, this brings to light something very important. Do you know the difference of faith in a crisis and faith in a process? Because really both are at work. 
in this matter of sanctification, in living the life. We enter into a crisis the moment we are saved. As ye have received, therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a crisis moment. There must be a crisis before there can ever be the beginning of a process. Every single one of us that has come to the Lord Jesus Christ and own Him as our Savior have had something that has gotten our attention. We came to a point in our life where we recognized our need. God dropped some boulder into our life that awakened us. I don't know what your boulder was. Probably different from mine, but basically we all have the same experience. God did something, got our attention. We recognized that he, was, that he was calling us, that uh, we needed Him, and we called upon Him and received Him. That was a crisis moment of faith. Stories basically the same. Sometimes a little more dramatic than uh, at other times, but basically the same story. It was a crisis that brought us to Christ. And then we entered into a process, but I think it's wrongly taught that once we had that faith begun in crisis that the rest is process salvation. That's not true. Let's talk a little bit about this. Let's look at them separately. Let's talk about this crisis. Now, let me uh, talk about crisis in the life of sanctification. Let's think about some scriptures that would seem to indicate that uh, this matter of victorious Christian living involves a crisis. Can you think of some scriptures that would uh, perhaps speak to that and uh, would be a proof to that? How about one like 2 Corinthians 7.1, that we are to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness. So there is a separation from defilement that I believe speaks to a crisis moment in our sanctification uh, side of life. How about Ephesians 4.31, where we are to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from us. Now, is, some, is that something that uh, we're called to do there over our process? I believe it's to happen in a moment of time. It's a decisive crisis that he's speaking of here. We're to, in Hebrews 12.1, lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us. That's not something that you're to do, according to that verse, over a period of time. It's to be done in a moment of time. That's a crisis decision that you come to in a moment in life. And uh, that very famous verse in Romans 12, present your body, a living sacrifice. That's something done not over a period of time, but in a moment of time. It's a crisis decision. And uh, we are too in 1 Peter 3.15, enthrone Christ as Lord, sanctify uh, Christ as Lord in our hearts. And that's done in a moment of time in a crisis. The word crisis is usually associated with something big that happens that is also accompanied by some great emotion. And... Uh, that's not totally accurate as far as a definition is concerned, especially when in reference to a spiritual life. It doesn't have to be a dramatic experience to be a crisis experience. I want you to understand that. In fact, the word crisis 
is a word that comes from the Greek, the Greek word krino, which is simply to decide. It's the ability to make a decision. So when we speak of a crisis moment in our personal spiritual life, uh, we are just saying that uh, there comes a time when some light is given to you and you see it and you make a decision. It may be more dramatic in one person's life than another's, just as salvation uh, is sometimes more dramatic than another's. I have a friend from Germany that uh, when he got saved, he had little or no Bible background, but he had fallen into the gutter of sin, and he was so fed up with it, and he didn't know what to do or what to say. He had, there was no uh, soul winner around, and he didn't have a Bible, but one day in his body shop as he was working and banging out car fenders, he just looked up to the window where the sun was shining through, and from the bottom of his heart, he just cried out, God or Jesus, help me. And he got saved on that, at that moment. He didn't know what happened to him, but he said he walked out of that body shop and it was connected to his house. He went into the house and his wife said, what in the world happened to you? And he said, I just met Jesus. And his life has never been the same. And he found out later what exactly had transpired. But it was a dramatic, almost a, you know, Damascus Road type experience. Not many of us have that kind of thing happen. But nevertheless, it was a crisis moment in his life. And there is that same need in the life of the believer in order to know victory. A crisis must take place, but it need not be dramatic but it must be decisive. You know, before anyone can draw a line, you have to begin with a point on that piece of paper. Before there can be a process that we call sanctification, there has to be this crisis. But I want to say that process-only sanctification, if that's all you're focused on in your life, you'll end up going awry. You'll end up skewing this whole thing of sanctification because it'll be your goal simply, if it's a process only, that uh, you want to be a better Christian. And so you'll keep trying. You'll keep growing. You'll keep moving ahead. And process only sanctification never accomplishes victory. Never. As ye have received, therefore, Christ Jesus the Lord. That was a crisis moment. So walk ye in him. In other words, there are going to be repeated crises in this walk with the Lord. You don't leave the crisis in the rearview mirror. You need to go through regular intervals of recommitment. Though it may not be dramatic, it must be a decisive moment. And every saved person has come to a decision moment when they clearly understood that sin was a problem, carried a penalty, that Jesus paid the, the payment, and they wholeheartedly agreed with that, and they made a decision to take a step of simple faith, and they decided to completely depend upon Jesus for his forgiveness of sin and deliverance from hell. 
And in the same way, you must make a decisive decision, a faith response to walk with him. Victorious living begins with a decisive moment. It's just like salvation begins with a big yes. But walking with him, walking in him, that's simply a continuing lifelong series of yeses to him. And that leads to a process. The Bible does speak about a process of sanctification as well as a crisis. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, the conformity, being changed as uh, through a mirror, being changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, the outer man dying, but the inward man being renewed day by day. That's process sanctification. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, any man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. That's a process. And of course, Romans 12 again, the second verse where we are renewed in the spirit of our mind and we are transformed. That's process sanctification that is uh, being spoken of there. And so victory begins with a crisis, but the crisis is meant to lead into a process. And it's not that we'll never have any more crisis in in the sanctification side of our life. We'll never reach the point. When we, won't, when we step out of this process until we see him face to face. And that's why Paul said what he did in Philippians chapter 3, not as though I had already attained, either already perfect, but I follow after that if I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, and I press toward the mark. That's what he's talking about there. So walk ye in him. And as we've just heard, walking is merely a series of reiterated steps. But would you note that as you take one step at a time, step by step progress through life, you are to be walking. It doesn't say on the way, but it says in him. In other words, by faith In Christ Jesus the Lord, every step of the believer on his journey of faith is one step of faith into Christ at a time. Not in the way, but in him. Your foot is not immediately stepping on the way, but is stepping in him And you, as you walk on the way. In other words, you walk in him. You're enveloped by him. You're, in, you're strengthened by him. You're drawing upon him. You, you, you are, uh, he's, he's behind you. He's beside you. He's underneath you. He covers you. It's walking in him. That's the process. That wonderful verse also that has been referenced in Galatians 2.20. It ought to be our life verse. It really should be. He says, I live by the faith 
of the Son of God. And you know, that is rooted, as we heard, in that word for faithfulness as well. And could we also not understand, uh, could we not also understand that verse as not only teaching that I have victory by faith in him, who is the victor, but could it also be said that my victory is his faithfulness to me? We need periodic crises in our spiritual walk with God. Because if it's just an endless process-type sanctification, that often leads to spiritual drought. And that's meant to create a desperation in God's people that they might see, I, I need a spiritual refreshing. Lord, it's time now for a downpour in my life. And so those times in the midst of the process turn into a crisis moment in our life, and we cry out to God. You know, I have a, a young couple that is with us in the church, and they're going to be planting a church in the city eventually, be with us for a couple of years yet, but... Uh, Oh, not too long ago, maybe half a year or more ago, one particular Sunday, I think I was preaching on Romans 5 and 6, and I had been leading up to those chapters, and uh, I could tell that uh, this young man, he was very troubled, and uh, after the, the he, he couldn't even lead the song at the end, and I let it, and then afterwards I said to him, is there something wrong that I can help you with? He said, well, if you have time tonight, I'd like for you to come over. I went over to their home, and he and his wife were sitting there, and I don't get it, Pastor. I've been, I was raised in a Christian home. I was saved when I was a child of four or five years old, raised in a good fundamental Baptist church. I thought I knew it all. I went to a, a good Christian college. I've been here, and I'm serving the Lord, but I have to admit, I'm a mess. My wife, she's sitting there, she agreed, are a mess. <laughs> Lose lose our patience with the kids, and then we struggle with one another. I mean, they were having some serious problems in tears. It was a crisis moment for him and his wife. But they got some things settled that night. They said, how do you enter in? How does this work? As best as I could, <laughs> I limped through and tried to share with them. But I can honestly say now, six, eight months later, that young couple is learning to live a spirit-filled life, day by day and moment by moment. I check on them every once in a while. But you know what they were taught? What we all were taught. <laughs> that, uh, you know, it's just inevitable. 
It's automatic, just an endless process, all of those things. And that's where it led them. It led them to defeat. It always does. I want you to know that it isn't your faith, but it's God's faithfulness. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live, can I say it this way, by the faithfulness of the Son of God. And you know, I believe that God was rejoicing when that young man came to that point in his life. I don't believe that God is ever disappointed when our best efforts produce failure. In fact, I'm convinced that he's already waiting for us to come to that point and discover that truth. God wants us to know that there is nothing but defeat outside of faith in him. He's not disappointed because he knows that living the believing life in our own strength is just as impossible, folks, as walking on water. I want you to turn in your Bible, if you would, please, for the next part of our time together to Matthew chapter 14, if you would. Matthew 14. Because I believe here we have what was stated in Colossians 2.16 illustrated. I'm sure you're very familiar with uh, this incident. I don't think that any passage illustrates what it means to walk with the Lord, walk in Him, better than this one. And I want you to see how it begins here in verses uh, 22 and following. It it begins really not with our walk or Peter's walk, but it it begins with the walk of Jesus. In verse 22 of Matthew 14, Jesus straightway constrained his disciples, get into a ship, go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a spirit, and they cried out for fear. Now, I want you to note some things about the walk of Jesus here. Jesus comes walking to them. It reminds me of the fact that Jesus came to seek and to save. Jesus walks to them. Jesus is seeking them out. These were his disciples. I want to submit to you that he is not only seeking to save the lost, but he is seeking believers to save them from defeat, from drowning in their own sin. Observe how Jesus walks and the effects of it. By the way, he walks to them and then Peter walks with him. 
And I really believe that God walks toward men because God wants to walk with men. Don't we see that right at the opening of the Bible in the garden where God is walking in the cool of the day with Adam? God wants to walk with you. With me? wants to walk with you. And I see him looking for people to walk with. Are you a candidate? You want to walk with him? He wants to walk with you. And look at what he plans for these disciples in these verses. He plans for them to walk on water. And he's not in denial about the difficulty of that. He's he's not in denial about the fierceness. He, He comes in the midst of a fierce storm at the height of it. In fact, he sent his disciples ahead right into that storm knowing that that's what they were going to be facing. And yet he deliberately sent them. And if God allowed that, then God must have had a purpose in doing that and must have keeping power through it all. And I'm certain he did. I want you to note also that what is not evident in this passage, but listen to this in Mark 6.48, in Mark's rendition of this incident, It says, and when he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them in the early hours of the morning, before the the sun rises, he cometh unto them walking upon the sea. And listen to this. Isn't this odd? And would have passed by them. (laughs) Would have passed by them. It reminds me of Luke 24 when he's on the road uh, to Emmaus with these two disciples and it's night and they come to their house and the Bible says that he would have, pa- he, he, would have he acted as if he would have passed on and uh, gone further. He passes them by. What's he doing? He's testing them to see if they would stop him if they would want to walk with him. You know, we're all Jacobs. And as was said yesterday, Jacob was a fleshly man. But one thing about him that distinguished him from Esau, he was not a profane man. He was not a man who looked at the things of God as common. He was a man that had a spiritual desire, though covered over it might have been by fleshly ambition. He was a man that had a heart really for God, and that's why God put his hand upon him and dealt with him as he did. And there was that wrestling match, and that wasn't the end. That wasn't when he really surrendered and, uh, and changed his character in Genesis 32. But in that wrestling match, there was the heart of Jacob opened up to God, and he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And the truth of Jesus, as if he would pass by them on that water, is he was looking for the disciples to reach out the hand of faith and lay hold of him and say, I'll not let you go except you bless me. It's as if he'll pass them by. I wonder how many times we've let the Lord Jesus walk by us. 
we let him go. I remember being in a, in a prayer meeting many years ago and people crying out from their heart with real fervency. And I remember that particular prayer meeting, my heart was cold. <laughs> and I said, oh God, what's wrong with me? Here are these people, their, their hearts are just being unburdened. And I have no such feeling in my heart. My heart is so cold. Lord, you're going to have to warm this cold heart of mine. I remember the song coming to my mind, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. You know, you can sing that as a believer too. Lord, brother so-and-so, you touched him. Yeah, but he didn't let me go. He wanted me to not pass him by. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. You want him? Oh, that that will bless me indeed. And Then he perplexes them in verses 25 and 26 because they're troubled. They think it's a, a spirit, and they cry out for fear. They're filled with fear. Jesus walks right in the middle of the storm without any difficulty at all, showing his miraculous power, and it's mind-blowing to these disciples, his ability to walk in the face of a gale. He perplexes them. He can do it. And then look at what he does in verse 27. He pacifies them. He spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. He pacifies them with his peace. Jesus is near, and he speaks peace to the heart. He not only walks in the water in the midst of gale-force winds and a severe storm without any difficulty, but you know what? He does it in perfect tranquility, and he'll give you that. No matter how bad it gets, God's in control. No matter how hot the temptation is, God is faithful. No matter how difficult it is, you can count it all joy. There's a crown of life. No matter how deep the sorrow, there's a fullness of joy. That's the walk of Jesus. I want you to see another walk here. In verses 28 and 29, there is what we might call the walk to Jesus. But Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. He said, come. Peter passed the test at that point. He overcame his fear. He possessed peace. Obviously, he would have never have stepped out of that boat and walked to Jesus. You know, one evidence that you are truly a believer with a New Testament desire for a normal quality of life. You know, there's a lot of talk about quality of life on the physical plane. Where is the cry from the believing community for a spiritual quality of life that, as we have been told, is normal? It's New Testament living. Peter was ready for that. And one of the evidences of a believer that is tuned in and is desirous 
of the Lord in his life is that there is that desire, it may not be fulfilled at the moment, for that quality of life, to experience his joy, to experience his peace, to experience his purity in your life and his power and his victory. And those who yearn to pray, that, that yearn for that, use similar words in their prayer that Peter did in his words to Jesus. Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. Lord, I can't walk on water. It's impossible. But Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee. That's the heart of a seeker. That's the yearning heart of a hungry soul to know his God and the victory that he gives. All of those enticements that the Holy Spirit of God drops throughout the Word of God to entice us into that land of milk and honey, that land of fullness and abundance. Uh, uh, John 10.10, I give you life, and more abundantly, the fullness of God, the fullness of the blessing. Uh, What are these? Does he waste words? Does he not mean what he says? He's enticing us for this, that he would draw us to himself. And Jesus then simply says one word in verse 29. You see that? Come. It's a personal invitation. I mean, we use that to tell people to come to Jesus to have their sin forgiven. And it's right to do that. It's a personal invitation, though, folks, that ought to be used to tell believers to come to Jesus for sanctification. The importance was that Peter would know it was the will of God for him to come because faith has to be grounded in the Word of God in which the will of God is revealed. So the Word of God and the will of God, uh, the will of God evidenced in the Word of God, he realized it was God's will, and when he realized it was God's will, when he answered in that one word, come, that was God's word to him, indicating the will of God to him, and I picture Jesus as having his arms outstretched like a father to a toddler, come, come, my child. Have you ever come to him to walk in him? Have you come to Jesus at all? Have you come to him? Do you know his forgiveness? Have you come to walk with him then? Have you come to him for deliverance from sin? From its its binding chains and power in your life? He says come. Yeah, come, walk on water, that's easier said than done. That's an impossibility. And you know what he's saying to Peter? In in, in essence, he's saying, Peter, come join me in the impossible. Absolutely. Christian life, if you haven't discovered yet, is humanly impossible. If you think you're living the Christian life and you're depending upon yourself, your human effort, your own energy, your own ability, you are not living the Christian life. Because it is impossible to live that way. And it be called truly Christian. 
The Christian life is humanly impossible. It's just as impossible to walk on water. It's just as impossible to live the Christian life. You read the Word of God. You find the purpose of God revealed in the pages of the Word of God, channeled to you through the person of God, and you demonstrate then the power of God. The Holy Spirit is saying to you, for Jesus today, come. My grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The Holy Spirit is saying to you, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The Holy Spirit is saying for Jesus to you, I am more than conqueror through him that loved me. He's saying, come. It's a personal invitation to each one of you. But it's also a possible vocation. It's the vocation wherewith we have been called that we are to walk in. What's impossible to man is possible with God. I can't, God, but you can. And I access by faith, I depend totally on Jesus to do what is otherwise impossible. And thus, I'm taking that major step of faith. And uh, that step of faith is, is my obedience. And when I take that step of faith out of the boat and place my foot on the top of that water, before it starts to sink, the Lord makes me buoyant. Take that step of faith, and he strengthens the weak limbs. You take that obedient step of faith, and he'll strengthen your spiritual limbs to walk with him. It's possible. It's also a powerful demonstration. When Peter stepped out of that boat... It represented really a change of mind in his life about God. (laughs) It was really a a demonstration of repentance. First of his love, and then of his trust, his faith. Do we realize how important those two things are in the believing life? Love and faith. It's impossible to please God without faith, without trusting him. It's also an uh, uh, increasing understanding of the incomprehensible dimensions of the love of God that leads us into knowing all the fullness of God. Powerful demonstration. I want you to see also not only the walk of Jesus, the walk to Jesus, but this is key, the walk with Jesus. He did it. Verse 29, Peter was come down out of the ship. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. He did. And it says in verse 30, when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. The walk with Jesus is a lifelong, daily, moment-by-moment thing. It's what God has purposed for humanity from the Garden of Eden. We don't live one day at a time. 
We live one moment at a time. Day by day, yes, but with each passing moment, strength I find. You can't live in advance. You must take by faith the strength, the enablement that God gives at this very moment. You don't get it ahead of time. It's a moment-by-moment walk. And when you do so, there is a supernatural ability. It's impossible to walk on water, but God gives to you a supernatural ability to defy our natural tendency. And our natural tendency, when we step out on top of water, is to sink. And the natural tendency in a human being, if we try walking on water... If we try living the Christian life without dependence upon the Lord, is to sin. It's just as, as miraculous to walk in victory as it is to walk on water. Just as our natural tendency, if we try to walk on water, is to sink because of the law of gravity. So the natural tendency as a believer is to sink under the law of sin. However, just as Jesus enabled Peter to defy the law of gravity and miraculously walk on water here in this passage, so the Holy Spirit of God can enable the believer to defy the law of sin and to walk in the Spirit. And remember, when Peter walked on water, Jesus did not suspend the law of gravity or we wouldn't have had what happened in the next verse, in verse 30, that when he saw the boisterous wind and was afraid, he began to sink. So the law of gravity was still in effect. It wasn't suspended. That proves it. But what Jesus did is while the law of gravity was still in effect, he simply counteracted the law of gravity with what we might call the law of buoyancy. And all the weight of Peter's body was not able to break the surface of the water. He simply counteracted gravity with buoyancy. God doesn't suspend the law of sin. Some run into error there. We talked about that. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. He doesn't suspend the law of sin in the believing life, but he simply counteracts it with the greater law of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So the walk with Jesus is really a supernatural ability to defy our natural tendency, but it also is a spiritual capacity to deny our willful independency. When we walk with God, we're depending upon Him. When Jesus, in that 31st verse, reached out His hand and caught Peter who was sinking, I don't think that Peter ever let go again. I think the rest of the way they went hand in hand and they walked together 
in victory to the boat, hand in hand, step by step, not walking ahead of Jesus, not lagging behind Jesus, but in perfect cadence with his touch. By the way, he walked on water again after he failed. Don't concentrate merely on the fact that he sank. Concentrate rather on the fact that after sinking, he cried out. Jesus rescued him out of his sinking condition, and then he walked perhaps farther. <laughs> because it seems like he was on his way to Jesus when he started to sink. Jesus reached out, picked him up, he got to Jesus, and then they had to walk back together. So perhaps he walked farther after his fall than before his, his sinking. So failure doesn't have to be final, does it? We have a spiritual capacity to deny our willful independency and to walk with him, look to him for leadership, not going on without it. Peter walked on water again after failure. And at this point, I don't think that Peter anymore was looking at the waves. I don't think that Peter was watching the, the other disciples in the boat. I don't think that he was uh, thinking about the wind. But I think that he, in that walk back, was looking into the face of the one that he was now connected to and sustained by. And so together, they too shared the experience of victory as they both moved across that water through the storm. Victory always is miraculous, and it's only explainable when we understand and take advantage by faith of the union that we have with the victor, more than conquerors. So the walk with Jesus is not only a supernatural ability to defy our natural, uh, our natural tendency, not only is it a spiritual capacity to deny our willful independency, but it thirdly is a special opportunity to decry our sinful uncertainty, and I'm talking about denouncing our unbelief. There's nothing more displeasing to God than our unbelief. In fact, God allowed millions of Jewish people in the wilderness to die because of their unbelief. And the thing that stands between you and I and enjoying the fullness of the blessing of the gospel is one word. It's unbelief. That's the reason you think it can never be different. That's why you think that change is impossible for your marriage, that it's over. That's why you think that there's no hope for that person. That's why you think you're in a hopeless situation and you have succumbed to fatalism and defeatist mentality. It's because of unbelief. And God says, call unto me and I will answer thee and I will show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. He says, thanks be unto God which giveth us the victory. It always causes us to triumph. 
Oh, wretched man that I am, I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord. I wonder, are you willing to step out of the boat and walk on water with Jesus? You think it's impossible, and it is for you, but it's not for him. And perhaps you're full of unbelief because you refuse certain things. And you refuse certain things. In fact, to open your mouth to witness is to you like walking on water. But Jesus wants you to do that. And if you walk with him, if you depend on Jesus, Jesus will speak his word through your mouth. Perhaps to not hate a certain person and spew out bitter things to them or about them is to you like walking on water. But Jesus wants you to not do that. And if you'll walk with him, if you'll depend upon him, Jesus will release his love in and through you and you'll forgive and his kindness through your heart and mouth will be extended and you'll speak comfort and kindness to them. And he'll do them good through your life. Perhaps to stop selfishly focusing upon yourself, pitying yourself, is like walking on water to you. But Jesus wants you to stop that. He wants you to exchange his his life for yours. And if you walk with him and if you depend upon him, Jesus will live his life through you. And instead of focusing on yourself and it being all about you and you having a pity party, it'll be about praising and thanking him and making him known. Perhaps to cease looking and lusting is an impossibility to you. It's like walking on water for you. But Jesus wants to make you pure. He wants to rid your life of the filth, and if you will walk with him and depend upon him, you will find that he will flood your life with his purity, and he'll purge the filth from your conscience. Maybe to rid your life of idols, I'm talking about the things that you give the most to. You know, in the life of Rachel, Children were an idol to her. She said said to her husband, give me children or I die. In other words, that was the idol of her life. She didn't want to live if she didn't have children. What is it that you must have to be happy and secure in this life? That's your idol. And perhaps your idol has not been able to be ripped from your life. You can't rid your life of it. It's impossible. It's like walking on water to you. But Jesus wants those idols out of your life. And if you'll depend upon him, walk with him, he'll enable you to lay them on the altar of surrender. All of them. Maybe to break some sinful habit, some addiction. It's like walking on water. But Jesus wants to snap those chains in your life. And if you walk with him, if you depend upon him, he'll conquer those cravings and he will deliver you into a life of holiness and victory by his power. Walking with Jesus is like walking on water. The first time that phrase, walking with God, appears in the Bible, it is Enoch. And we remember Enoch in Scripture not because of his brilliant intellect, 
his natural giftedness, his charismatic personality, his wealth, his athletic prowess, but his spirituality. He walked with God. Simple. How do you want to be remembered? If you're living as if this is all there is and there's no eternity, perhaps you'd, you'd like to be remembered for being shrewd, being sharp, being a good worker or a gifted person or however. If you're looking for things above, then you would probably want to be known as someone like Peter, someone who walked on water in a spiritual sense. Rahu, the Hindu holy man who flirted with fame very briefly in 1966 during the hippie years, was an old Hindu mystic that believed he could walk on water. He was so confident of his spiritual power that he announced that he would perform this feat before a live audience. And so he sold tickets for $100 a piece in what was then called Bombay. The elite turned out in mass to behold the spectacle. And the event was held in a beautiful garden with a large deep pool. And a crowd of more than 600 people gathered around the edge of the pool. And the white-bearded yogi appeared in his flowing robes and stepped confidently to the edge of this pool of water. He paused, he prayed silently, and a reverent hush fell on the audience. And he opened his eyes and he looked heavenward and he boldly stepped forward. And there was an awkward splash and he disappeared under the water. But not for long, he came up trembling with rage and he shook his finger at the silent, embarrassed, embarrassed crowd and he said, one of you, he bellowed, one of you is an unbeliever. You know, if we're having trouble walking with the Lord, there's only one answer. We're unbelieving believers. Believers. 